So you will recall at the beginning of Numbers chapter 21, if I can, if I can give you a, a, a map here with gestures, the Red Sea is basically here. All right, Edom is below the Red Sea. The Israelites were wandering around here and they wanted to pass through Edom and come up uh, above the Red Sea and then cross west over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. But the Edomites said no. So the Israelites ended up going kind of north and they fought with the king of Arad last week near this place called Hormah, which was, I guess somewhat ironically, where they had been defeated about 40 years earlier when they decided that they would try to go up to the Promised Land after they initially had said they wouldn't and God judged them and told them you're going to have to wander. So they're back at that spot, which is kind of here. Alright? Now, tonight, we read that from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So what this means is they're actually now traveling southeast. Why? I don't exactly know, to be honest with you, and none of the commentators seem to know either. But we know that the pillar of the cloud and pillar of fire was leading them and guiding them, and so this just seems to be the Lord's providence. So instead of going straight up north into the promised land, now they're turning away from the promised land again to, I guess, to kind of go along the coastline far enough away from the center of Edom that hopefully Edom will let them pass, presumably, is what's going on. But anyway, the people are, are moving away from the direction of the promised land at this point, traveling southeast away from Canaan. It says here, that the people became impatient on the way. Numbers 21 and verse 4. Perhaps they were frustrated because they were moving away from the promised land. And fresh off victory against the king of Arad at Hormah. Perhaps they, they felt like the Lord is with us. We can go into the promised land now. And then the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire leads them away from the promised land again. And it feels frustrating to them. Uh, perhaps it was a land flowing with milk and honey up around Horma, where they had just been fighting. Lush, uh, good vegetation, and so on and so forth. And now here they are traveling back towards a more desert-like region, which if you're traveling on foot is just more uncomfortable. And so perhaps it's not so much that they're moving away from the promised land, but that they're traveling in comfortable, pleasant country, away to more uncomfortable country. But for whatever reason, they grow impatient on the way. And... They speak against God and against Moses again. How many times have you heard this? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? <laughs> By this time it's getting tiring even for us, isn't it? <laughs> and you imagine if this was Moses to say, guys, again? <laughs> like they've literally been saying that since they were... Uh, pinned against the Red Sea, remember when the Lord split the waters, right? They've literally been saying this for over 40 years. We're going to die in the wilderness. Why have you brought us out to kill us in the wilderness? So here, here comes the complaining again. And here is a here is statement, which is obviously exaggeration, but taken, taken literally, it's self-contradictory. In verse 5, For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. 
So we can understand what they mean by it. But is there really no food? There is food. There's manna from heaven every day. It's just simply not what they want. And so this is like the woman who opens the closet and says there is nothing to wear. Nothing. (laughs) Really? Nothing? What it means is there's nothing that I want. There's nothing that I prefer. There's nothing that conforms to my sensibilities. There's nothing that fits with my choosy and picky taste. This is what the Israelites are doing here. There is no food. Literally nothing. This worthless food is... uh, We're getting tired of it. We're we're loathing this worthless food. So there's complaint about the direction or there's complaint... During the travel, at least I should say, we're not, we're not necessarily sure exactly what it means that they got impatient on the way. It may have been just over the food. But there, are, there is also good reason to think that it, it may have been moving away from the promised land or moving back away from lush vegetation towards a more desert journey and just the discomfort of that again. This is what's going on here in this passage. God sends, we read, fiery serpents. Verse 6. This may be because they were fire-colored, like orange or red-ish, yellowish snakes. Or it may be because the effect of it was that it, it made people uh, burn and like really, really thirsty, which apparently some snake bites do, make you, make you burn and make you feel really, really thirsty. And so the, the effect of it as it was killing you was that it felt like you were burning up like on fire. We don't know exactly what that means, the fiery serpents. But it's obvious that there was venomous, they were venomous snakes. It says they bit the people in Numbers 21 and verse 6, so that many of the people of Israel died. They, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. And again, how many times, how many times has this happened? Moses, you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us. You know, you, you hate us. Why did you exalt yourself above us? All these complaints against Moses. But time again, people go back to Moses and say, please pray for us. Right, so here they are again. This guy that was so loathsome to them just a few hours ago. Now all of a sudden they want to come and ask him to act like a friend to them and to be their buddy and pray for them and intercede for them. Moses' magnanimous personality and gracious spirit is again on display because we read at the end of verse 7, so Moses prayed for the people. Moses is not by any means a perfect man, but Moses is a good man who loves the Lord and loves the people and really cares for them in spite of all their failings. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 8, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit on anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the cure that God provides for the snake bites which he had sent as a punishment and a chastisement 
to the people of Israel. So just understanding the passage, this is what's going on. Here are a couple of immediate applications of what's happening here in this passage. The first is, beware of growing discontent with God's providence. If we turn nowhere else in the Bible, we could learn that from this passage. The fire and the cloud led the people on a path that presumably they did not want to be on. For whatever reason, whether it was because they were moving away from the promised land and it seemed so close and they got their hopes up and now they're feeling frustrated because they're moving away from it again. Or perhaps they're moving away from a pleasant and lush region into a more arid region again. They were discontent with the way that God was leading them. <clears throat> Perhaps you, you felt like you were very close to achieving your goals at some point. And then for whatever reason, the Lord moved you away from those things. And in some stroke of providence, what you thought you were about to attain, you did not attain. And so here you are moving in a different direction. They feel frustrated. Something that you think is about to come to pass, which doesn't. Even in Proverbs it says, hope deferred, hope deferred makes a heart sick. And there is a reality that sometimes when we think that we're about to accomplish something, and then we find out this is not God's will for our lives, it can be very difficult. And we end up traveling along a path that we did not think that we would be traveling along. We're moving in a direction different than we thought that we would be traveling along. And the hope that we had in our heart for a particular thing has been deferred. And it makes the heart sick. There's nothing wrong with grieving. There's nothing wrong with being sad. But the people here grumble, it says, against God and against Moses. And we need to be aware of grumbling if the Lord leads us away from something that we thought that we were about to attain and takes us along a different path. It's also the case sometimes in our lives that we are in pleasant circumstances for a time and then the Lord leads us away from pleasant circumstances towards more difficult circumstances. And as these people were on the outer edges of the land flowing with milk and honey. And after wandering around in the desert, no doubt it would have been really nice to see green foliage and to perhaps pick some of the fruit. Remember the, the big bunch of grapes that was carried on a stick between two men 40 years earlier? This was the kind of place that Canaan was at that time. And perhaps the Israelites had got a taste of it as they battled in and around this, this region of Hormah defeating the king of Arad and the various cities that he ruled over. Perhaps they had eaten some of these grapes. And now the Lord is moving them away from grapes, back to manna alone. And the sweetness of the grapes lingers on their taste buds, as it were. And all they have now all they have now is this, as they call it, this worthless food. You, 
originally you had nothing and the Lord provided for you and you felt, wow, look at this, bread from heaven. This is amazing. This is wonderful. And then the Lord provided on top of bread from heaven, He provided some grapes of Canaan on top of it. Look at the grace of God in your life and the kindness of God in providing for you. And then the Lord puts you back in a season where, where you don't have grapes of Canaan and you just have bread from heaven. By comparison, it seems that the Lord is mistreating you. And you've grown to feel entitled not only to have bread from heaven, but to have grapes of Canaan too. Though we read elsewhere that in these 40 years, their clothes did not wear out and their, their shoes did not wear out. The Lord sustained them wonderfully wandering through the wilderness. No doubt, there were points where that was an encouragement to them as they walked through the wilderness. Look at these shoes. You know, I, so to speak, I bought them at Payless 29 years ago. And they're still in great shape. Look at how the Lord takes care of us. Look at how the Lord ministers to us. Right? When they came to walk not on hard, sun-baked ground or rocks, but started to feel soft soil beneath their feet and grassy surfaces, no doubt, in spite of God's preservation, they would have appreciated the comfort and the ease that it was not to be walking on that hard ground again. And so when the Lord turned them back towards the arid desert way and they started feeling the hard ground, their mind didn't go, well, don't worry, the Lord will sustain us again in this desert place. The Lord will continue to take care of our shoes and our clothes and our feet and He's going to preserve us here. No. All of a sudden, what was a blessing, what was a preservation became overlooked. And there was this sense of entitlement to softer ground. We can be the same way. At some point in your life, maybe, let's just say material. You have nothing. And you pray in your desperation and you ask God to help you. And the Lord provides. Maybe a, maybe a job and it pays the bills and you're getting by. And then as time goes on, you move up and up and up. And all of a sudden you have some expendable income and so on and so forth. But then in the Lord's providence, there's a turn of events and you're back to making ends meet. And you grumble. What you were thankful for when God provided it in the first place all of a sudden seems now like less than you're entitled to because you had grown accustomed to living higher. The same could happen with health. The same could happen with just whatever, just any pleasant circumstances. You get, you get accustomed to a certain standard of something and then it reverts back to how it was before in your life and you have this feeling of being ripped off. We need to be aware of grumbling against God's providences in our lives. That all con concerns the direction that the Lord is leading us, so to speak. The path that He has for us to walk. But consider also this question of the manna. This grumbling about the manna. 
we loathe this worthless food. I touched, I touched on it already. But this was miraculous bread from heaven. To feed a multitude so large in the wilderness, day after day after day, it would have been no small feat. And the Lord sends bread from heaven for these people. Now, admittedly, maybe it wasn't to taste, at least every day. Obviously, these people got sick of it. And I could understand that. I think you probably could too. Even if you took your, maybe one of your favorite foods. If you had to eat that breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 40 years, you might even get sick of that. You might not, depending on what it is and how much of a level of tolerance you have for sameness. I feel like I could probably eat pizza every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 40 years. But my point is this. It may not have been their favorite food. It may not have been even that. Maybe there were Israelites who were like, yeah, the man is fine. It's great. Tastes good. But there was enough. There was a, a bunch of people here that just got sick of the same meal day after day after day. I think we can, we can understand having the same food all the time could grow weird. Especially if it was not food that was particularly incredible in the first place. In terms of its sort of natural appeal, if you will. Aside from it being bread from heaven, just put that out of your mind for a second. If you found wafer-like substances, which were kind of sweet to the taste, you probably wouldn't think this is the best thing I ever had. I'm not trying to be disrespectful about the men, but just saying it sounds like it was, let's be fair, pretty ordinary. Mildly kind of sweet bread. Wafery kind of bread. So I think we can understand where they're coming from. But this was God's provision. This was God's provision. So even if naturally speaking, it may not have been exactly the greatest thing ever. It was God's provision. Consider, for example, your husband or your wife. Now, my wife makes all my wildest dreams come true. And she's everything I could ever imagine that she would be. And I, there's no defect in her whatsoever. But from, but from, but from what I hear, <laughs> some people see some imperfections in their spouse. You know, obviously I'm being, I'm being facetious, but let's be honest. The, the person that, that we are married to is in very many ways normal. And there, there are good things about him or her, or there are bad things about him or her. The families that we grow up in, the parents that we, that we had or have, they're just normal people. The kids that we, that we have, kids, the parents that you have right now, they're not the greatest thing ever. But they're yours. They're what God has given you. They're, they're your people. They're the provision for you in your life. 
your friends, right? Your, your job, so on and so forth. All of these things may be just ordinary, run-of-the-mill people, circumstances, so on and so forth. But they are yours. They are the provision that God has made for you as you go. Think, I want you to think especially of this. Jesus says that He is the true bread from heaven who gives life to the world in John chapter 6. So I want you to think especially of how it is that we receive and are nourished by Jesus, the true bread from heaven, as we go through this world. By what means? Listen. Is Bible reading, prayer, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, hearing the public reading of Scripture, right? Hearing God's Word preached, celebrating baptisms, communion, right? The ordinary means of grace, we call it. This is how we receive Jesus, the true bread from heaven. By what means do we actually get Jesus day by day, so to speak? It's the ordinary means. This church is good. I think it's reasonably healthy. I think it's reasonably biblical and faithful and so on and so forth. Is it the greatest church ever since the time of the apostles? No. <laughs> you know, it's fine. It's okay. Like You can find some defects with it. But it's ours. This is the ordinary means of grace that God has given for us to have the bread from heaven to nourish us day by day as we make our way through this world. Consider how you cherish the means of grace personally, your daily devotions. Bible reading, prayer, family worship, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in your own home. Consider how you value gathering with the saints on the Lord's Day and as, as you have other opportunities. Do you think, wow, look at this bread from heaven that as we make our way through this desert place, God gives us Jesus by these means day after day after day as we go. Or do we feel like, eh, man, boring old Bible reading, boring old prayer, boring old church. You see, grumbling about the ordinary means of grace, even though it's the same week after week, year after year, even though it's maybe not flashy and exciting, maybe it's not to taste, maybe sometimes you like it, but sometimes you get sick of it, just like maybe it was with the manna. This is God's provision. This is the means by which God feeds us and nourishes us of Christ as we make our way through this world. So particularly, be, be, be careful about grumbling against God's providences in all of the circumstances of life, but particularly with respect to the means of grace. So that's, that's all evident here in this passage without turning anywhere else in scripture we should we should certainly think along these lines well 
That's not, that's not true. I did say John 6. But you can, see how we, you can see how we get to all this pretty naturally just within this passage. Let me give you one more still in this passage. The cure for the snake bites was looking at a bronze statue. As one commentator put it, this is unscientific. There is no scientific basis for removing venomous poison from your veins by looking at a statue. But God had said that everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So the people in this passage had to take God at his word that looking upon this serpent, they would live. Now we might think about, in our mind's eye, maybe a circle of eight or ten tents and this bronze pole in the middle. And all someone really had to do was just pull back the flap of the tent and behold, the bronze serpent. But consider what this whole horde of people, this myriad of people in the Israelite camp, if there was a localized statue of a serpent somewhere, and you know how crowds move, you realize that people would have had to make some effort to look upon this thing, to see it, and to live. Now, if you were in the throes of death, having been bit by a venomous serpent, I could only imagine that would not be what you felt like doing. I could imagine, not that I've been bit by a venomous serpent, but say for example, if you have like a bad case of gastro, or you have even just like some kind of fever or something, like you don't feel well. And then someone says, well, you just gotta go here or go there. You think, I can't go anywhere, right? The people had to take God at his word and act on what God said in order to be cured. They didn't merit it. Their effort was not something that earned them anything. But their effort was a necessary response to what God had said. That's what faith looked like, was to respond accordingly to what God had said. We could get to this idea without ever reading John 3, but you may have John 3 in your mind, and rightly so. For in John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, verse 14 and 15, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. God says that's the cure, to believe in Jesus. Now, Some say that adding repentance as a condition of salvation, as in repent and believe, is legalistic and is adding works to uh, the gospel. 
Whereas the gospel is by faith alone and to preserve the purity of free grace, we can't call people to repentance. There's a whole controversy about lordship salvation, as they call it. Whether you can receive Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Well, that makes no sense, because Jesus is Savior and Lord. So if you receive Him, you receive Him as He is. And furthermore, when we think about what was entailed in taking God at His word for the Israelites who were bit by the serpents, they couldn't just lay in their tents and say, Yes, Amen. Whoever looks at that bronze statue will indeed be healed. Bless the Lord for free, sovereign grace and His mercy to us snake-bitten people. I agree. And then hope to be healed. That's not how, that's not how it worked. There was a response called forth. If you believe that, there is a necessary and commensurate action involved in actually believing that, which is to get out of your tent. And if you can't get there, get some friends to put an arm under your shoulders and carry you, you know, or, or prop you up. And you've got to get there. You've got to say, i got to get to this bronze statue. This is what God has said. I believe it. I've got to take the action and start moving in the direction of this bronze serpent. Likewise, to believe in Jesus isn't just to lay there in the pig pen believing, yes, I will be welcomed home. If I go, I will be welcomed home and yet stay. That's not what it means to believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus really and truly involves moving in a Jesus word direction. Going to Him to look upon Him and to live and to follow the Lamb in the, in the language of Revelation, whithersoever He goest. If you love Me, Jesus said, keep My commandments. Which is why sometimes we read repent and believe and other times we simply read believe. Because believe can stand for believe and repent. And when you just think about the nature of it, it seems obvious. But what Jesus does here is He says, just as the people of old had to look on that bronze serpent in order to live, so y'all are going to have to look on Me to live. You're going to have to take God at His word that as this bronze serpent was the cure for the snake bites, so I am the cure for the condemnation that you're under, the sentence of death that you're under. That's at face value of John chapter 3 and the way Jesus interprets this. But we can press this even a little bit further. Because the figure that the old the Israelites of old were to look at was a likeness of what was killing them. It was a bronze serpent when it was the serpents that were killing them. Right? We read in Romans 8.3 that Jesus was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, we read this. For our sake, He that is God made Him, that is Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you realize that just as the figure that the Israelites of old had to look at was a likeness of what was killing them, so it is that Jesus became a likeness of what it is that's killing us. Which is not something outside of us. Our biggest problem is not snakes. Our biggest problem is not other people. Our problem is our own sinfulness. And this is why we're going to die. Is because we are sinful. But Jesus was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8.3 says. And God made him sin, to be sin, who knew no sin. So here is Jesus made in the likeness of that which is killing us. Made in our likeness. And then lifted up. And we would take God at His word and say, just as in old times they had to look at that serpent and live, so now we see that we have to look at Jesus and live. What Jesus did was He took on our nature. He took on our condemnation. And He, he wore it. He bore it. And himself, he substituted himself for us. The response to that is to believe in such a way that we make our way to Jesus. That we move in a Jesus word direction. To believe in a way that encompasses repentance. Taking God at his word. Not staying in the dying station that we're in. But getting up and moving in a Jesus word direction. Believing that if we could just get to Jesus, we will be saved. This is the way that Numbers 21 points us towards Christ and towards the gospel.